Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday... It's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president-select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com RG. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now, he is back from the Herald, the Pats Interference Pod. It is Andrew Callahan. Callahan, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing well. We are so close to football. I was going to say football, you can smell it in the air. Uh, But thank God that's not true. Because anyone who's been in the locker room, I guess as a kid who plays football, knows football is the second worst smell only to a hockey locker room. So we're close, but not that close, thankfully. I'm, I'm ready to roll. Yeah, hockey's bad, man. I'll tell you what, I felt good last night because the Red Sox, they got absolutely killed during the day. So last night I didn't have to watch the Red Sox play baseball, which hasn't been fun recently. I fired up some Netflix watching this new show on Netflix, which is pretty good. But I will say this, I'm excited because we're recording Thursday morning. We got a ranked football team playing tonight. Utah's playing Florida in like the Urban Meyer Bowl, which I hope it's not the same as that documentary that we saw Swamp Bro. Kings, which is, did you see that? It was an infomercial. I, I no. forget who used the word infomercial, but it was basically just like propping up Urban Meyer. <laughs> like, you realize this place is a dumpster fire when he coached there, right? I I think the last thing we talked about was, you know, I deemed it like truth management, you know, which is kind of just PR as it is. But when it creeps that far into documentaries where that's the only way in which you get to make the movie is you let the actors call the shots. It's one thing when you're Michael Jordan and there's a secret tape of his whole entire season with the Bulls. Like, okay, that's a concession to make. But when you're Urban Meyer, like, what kind of leverage did he have over the documentary makers? They they just want to be friends with him and go over to his house. This guy didn't leave Jacksonville. He got his ass kicked on the way out the door in his only first season. So, like, yeah, I get he needs the redemption tour, but you can't tell the story of that 08 team. 41 players got arrested on that team. And I haven't seen it. Insane. How many times did they mention that? They did a little bit of that, but not much. Like Aaron Hernandez was barely mentioned in the documentary, but they went into a couple of guys on the team that got arrested when they were at basically when they were at the school. They painted Urban Meyer as being this great guy for like having one of the kids over to his house all the time for dinner, like a guy that had got arrested. So, yeah, it was 
it was basically propping up Urban Meyer, which I don't understand why anybody would want to prop up Urban Meyer at this particular point in time. It doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, so let's get to the Patriots here, Callahan. So I would tell you this, just don't watch that documentary. It's not worth it. But getting to the Patriots. So Bailey Zappi released and then he cleared waivers and he signed back to the practice squad. So a couple of things here. The Patriots, at least in some sense, they risked that he could get picked up by another team. But at the same time, he had a really bad preseason. And on cutdown day, a lot of other teams, they sort of have their quarterback room figured out, right? So it's tough to add another quarterback at that point. But the Patriots would not have taken a risk of losing Zappi if he had this great training camp in preseason and actually pushed back Jones going back to the offseason where Bill basically wouldn't say that Mac is like unequivocally the starter, right? So the numbers during the preseason I mentioned on Tuesday were atrocious. He averaged 5.0 yards per attempt. That was 61st of 70 qualifiers. Passer rating was 41st, and he completed 58.8% of his passes. So a guy I think that most Patriots fans, Callahan, went into the offseason feeling pretty good about as a backup, right? Even to the point where, hey, maybe he can push Mac Jones to the point where now he's looked at a guy that the Patriots are at least, as I mentioned, willing to lose in some capacity. So what happened? Did he just regress as a player? Did he not take to Bill O'Brien's offense? Is it all of the above? What happened to Zappi this training camp and preseason? So let's step back a second and go to last year because that's the whole backdrop. I mean, for everything that's going to happen with the Patriots in 2023 is against what happened last season, whether it's Belichick, Mac, the offense, or Bailey Zappi. Bailey Zappi, of course, famously started this fever across the region because he had two starts, which reminded me that sample size is one hell of a drug. Like at the bottom, there's, I don't know, like hitting a March Madness parlay. Then you get to caffeine, alcohol, weed. Now I'm out of my depth, cocaine. And then there's small sample size because you could not have picked two better opponents for him to face that year. By the way, he didn't start fast in either of those games. The Lions still aren't playing defense. The Browns didn't know how to tackle until November. So he goes in, wins those games, looks like a starting quarterback. Now, he's talked since about the game slowing down for him. And what I saw in training camp and in the preseason is it's too slow. Because in the last full week of practice, he had a day where he took six sacks in team drills. In Green Bay, in their first joint practice, he took eight. Okay, so he's patting the ball. We saw it happen in Tennessee, three fumbles. He also threw the most interceptions of anyone in training camp. I don't think it's a scheme thing. I think this is a player that the first thing we knew about him was he was probably overdrafted in the fourth round, projected as a prospect, sixth, seventh round guy or undrafted. The Patriots said, no, 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 no. We know better. It looked like they did. I would argue the rest of us were right because the, the offense he's executing now, Brian, is actually stuff he did at Western Kentucky. Like the under center shotgun snap, the splits are a little bit different, but a lot more RPOs, more motion, more spread concepts incorporated from Alabama, which have made Mac look great. But Bailey Zappi held on to the ball too long. He turned it over and had a batted pass, I think, on average, about one to two per practice. And that's what happens when you're six foot and you don't have a strong arm, which is something we knew, again, when he was a prospect coming out, expected to go in the sixth or seventh round. Yeah, and you're right, because I got caught up in the fever, too. I'm like, oh, look at this. He's <laughs> executing the offense. And I remember at that time even thinking, and I, I think I probably said this on the pod, like after the Browns game, where I believe it was 165 of his yards came out of play action. I'm like, oh, Patricia, he's using the play action. He may have figured this out. <laughs> That's the other part about this is that like, well, first of all, I don't blame you. I don't blame anyone who got caught up in the fever because the Patriots had it's the a great rebound. time to be alive. Yeah, they had their rebound with Cam after a long, successful 20-year relationship with Brady. Mac is the new relationship. That starts to sour. So you're looking at somebody new. Things are going great. 
perfect. You want to hop on with Bailey Zappi. But then they didn't do those things to prop up him or this relationship with the fan base, namely play action and different other concepts for Mac Jones. It was a totally different offense. They right. didn't take the low-hanging fruit. Um, so, yeah, of course, in a season when we were devoid of hope, and joy, and fulfillment, uh, yeah, go ahead with Bailey Zappi. So just logistically, like, what do you think the plan is here? Are they going to use, like, I, what is it? Correct me if I'm wrong. You can basically elevate a guy three times. So do you think they yes. do that a couple of times and then permanently he becomes the backup? Are they still in the market for a backup? Do Is it one week? Do they elevate Malik Cunningham because they feel like they want to use that package of him being able to run the ball? What do you think their plan is at this point? Or is it just at this point still things are up in the air? That I think is more likely. Like for as purposeful as the Patriots are and everything in that building is powered by intention. Sometimes their plan is exactly what Belichick says to us to death. We'll see how it goes. And with Bailey Zappi, I can tell you there were people, you know, deep within that organization who didn't know he was released until they got back from practice on Tuesday and were surprised. <laughs> but those same people would acknowledge that he stunk in training camp of the preseason, which we all saw. So I think the Patriots look, okay, what are our other options? Not great. Colt McCoy, obviously, anyone would love to have as their backup quarterback, but he's dealing with an elbow injury. Okay, He obviously would come in like any veteran, you know, learning a new offense. You've got nine, ten days now before the opener. How is that going to go? Do you want to sign Jeff Driscoll or like the corpse of Joe Flacco? Like, I, I don't think so. So he's their best option. They realize they could probably sign him through waivers to roster an 11th offensive lineman, which, fingers crossed, isn't the case um, come week one. I think ultimately they'll find there aren't any other better options. They're going to let this play out. They'll promote him three times, and then he'll be the backup because there's just no better quarterback out there. It's like offensive tackles. Like, they already made their moves for those guys and their backups who have combined 33 offensive snaps between them, Darian Lowe and Tyree Wheatley Jr. Everyone wants an offensive tackle. Everyone wants a good backup quarterback, and they're just not going to find it. So I think he'll find his way back onto the 53, probably by late September, early October. Makes sense, and I know there was, like, a lot of hysteria when he was released, but... As people that cover the team, yourself included, pointed out like he could easily be back with the team pretty shortly. So it seems like that's the route they're going to go. So I want to get to Mac because we saw him in limited preseason action in that Packers game. And I thought he looked comfortable before Trent Brown went down or left the game, not went down with the injury. But obviously he was on a limited snap count and then he's taking hits. I'm like, oh, maybe they should take Mac out at this point, too. But he hit Kendrick Bourne on a nice RPO. I know that. Of course, he missed Hunter Henry, who was open, but he looked like he was in command of the offense. And you wrote that nowadays O'Brien and Jones speak about one another like they might skip into the team's practice field holding hands. I love that line, Callahan. So clearly they're on the same page. And I have to imagine Mac likes this, right? It's a combination maybe of some of the old stuff they did in the Patriots offense with McDaniels and some of the stuff they did last year that wasn't like the Shanahan stuff and some of the stuff, the concepts that he used at Alabama as well. So how good is Mac look throughout camp to you? The word I would use to encapsulate everything we've seen from Mac, and this goes to yesterday when three or four minutes in the locker room, he's just BSing with some reporters and joking around things in his locker. Oh, do you know I do this? Just a free and comfortable Mac is the one I would use. And that goes for on the field. Where again, we we know and see the concepts that Bill O'Brien has taken with him from Alabama that Mac used to run in the offense, the other parts of the offense. Mac is now entering year three with. He's comfortable with the teammates around him, the system, the coaches. I think the relationship with Belichick, with Bill O'Brien as a buffer, which used to be Josh McDaniel's job, by the way, towards the end with Brady and Belichick. Like he was the go-between for two of them. Everything has Mac Jones comfortable. And the Patriots know. They need Mac to be comfortable, not only in the pocket, which is still a giant question mark, but within the system and with his teammates for him to thrive. He's a pocket-bound 
point guard. Okay, he's not creating offense in his own scrambling or extending plays or rifling the ball downfield. And all signs point to, aside from the leaky pass protection, that will be the case. And the most clear evidence we had of this was not only the way he shredded Green Bay, who might have an average defense, probably not a big, significant data point, but improved throughout training camp, where he's going from 50% completion percentage in the red zone the first week of camp, but everyone's freaking out. Oh my God, it's 50%. But now it's close to 80 in the last few practices, and that's huge. In live team periods against an excellent defense, he's the best and most comfortable I've ever seen. Well, it's it's. I'm glad to hear it because at least he's going to have an opportunity to prove whether or not he's the franchise quarterback with a real offensive coordinator again. But there are some concerns, Callahan, because you had an article that went up on Wednesday morning entitled "The Patriots Failed to Help Mac Jones This Offseason and Paid for It on Cutdown Day." So let's start with the line portion of this, right? You mentioned they signed Riley Reef to a one-year deal. Then he's playing guard and instead of tackle, he gets hurt. Kelvin Anderson who was signed for two years. He had a serious illness during training camp. He did not participate. Obviously, they couldn't predict that. Connor McDermott out for the year. And then Sunday, you alluded to the two guys they signed Tyra, or traded for Tyron Wheatley Jr. They bring in Vidarian Lowe as well. Both those guys, very little NFL experience. City Sow is a guy that they try to tackle, even though we talked about this last time you were on. He was a guard at the collegiate level. They wanted to use him as a tackle. So you mentioned in your article that Orlando Brown, Mike McGlinchey, Juwan Taylor were all available this offseason. So the Patriots didn't use high draft capital on a tackle. And I like their draft, by the way, but I'm just pointing this out. They didn't use high draft capital on a tackle, and they didn't address that position with a big name or a really established player in the offseason. I mean, Riley Reef has established himself as an older player that, quite frankly, at this point, isn't very good. So did they consider going big game hunting or did they just figure that this thing would work itself out? So I want to go back to that column just to clarify for a second, because it might sound ridiculous, but let's, let's start here with two things. One, no team wants more than 20% of its roster to be comprised of offense alignment. And that's exactly where the Patriots are now keeping 11. And when you keep 11 offensive linemen, that means you have to steal from other positions And one of those positions was quarterback. Another was running back. They only have two running backs in the roster among quarterback. And it's not good business to waive your backup quarterback. You drafted in the fourth round last year and relying on to be a backup, knowing he's not good enough for you and he's not good enough for the 31 other teams that pass on him. Okay, that's bad. So for the 11 offensive linemen, to me, yes, bad injury luck played a major role in this. Okay, it's not Riley Reef's fault. He got hurt. Calvin Anderson got sick. Connor McDermott's already on IR. All of these things happen, but let's say it wasn't Riley Reef who got hurt. Let's say it was Orlando Brown Jr. who signed six years around $64 million, uh, with Cincinnati instead. You know when he comes back, he's your starter. He's going to play. He's yeah. going to plug some holes. You don't know that now if you're the Patriots with Riley Reef because Riley Reef not only got hurt, he got hurt playing a different position at right guard in the preseason finale, a game when no other starter virtually for the Patriots was playing, and that's because he wasn't good enough to hold it down at right tackle, where now you have a fourth-round rookie who played guard in college instead of him. Calvin Anderson, same deal. He's back. He's healthy. Very happy for him. He talked about a super serious illness. He didn't know if he was going to play football again. That's the most important part. But secondarily, when he does play football again, do you know what to expect from him? Because I don't. No. (laughs) No. Why, Why would you? He was a swing tackle for the Broncos, and so the Patriots took all these you know, low odds gambles. We're going to throw all these tackles at the wall and see what giant, sweaty human being will stick. And so far, none of them have. (laughs) So you have to trade for Vidarian Lowe. You have to trade for Tyrone Wheatley Jr. I have a story coming out next week, by the way. Great story. But 
Tyrell Wheatley Jr. has played exactly zero snaps, as many as you and I have combined in the NFL regular season. But Darian Lowe is already playing guard for the Patriots and has played 33. So that's where they're at, is I think they considered going big game hunting. They look at that price tag for Orlando Brown Jr., uh, four years, 64 million. No thanks. Mike McGlinchey, five years, 87 and a half million. Only 52 was guaranteed. No thanks. It's not worth the value. Here's the thing, though. The value is not in a vacuum. Okay. Mike McGlinchey doesn't need to live up with his own performance to make it worth that $52 million guaranteed. What he needs to do is make Mac Jones comfortable because right. a comfortable Mac Jones is not only going to provide better value on his contract but on the contracts of the teammates around him because he's going to elevate the teammates around him if he's protected. But right now the Patriots don't know if he's going to be protected because they have legitimately, and I'm not kidding, six different players. If you throw a Michael one who could play a right tackle in week one, and that's why they have 11 offense linemen on the roster. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Heim Bloom in previous years where there was no certainty with guys coming out of the bullpen. It's like, oh, this guy might work, that guy might work. And finally, we get to this season. And look, the Red Sox are a mess right now, so it's not a great comparison at this particular juncture. But Chris Martin and Kenley Jansen have been really good for these guys. Like, they are really established good relievers. He finally paid the price for good relievers instead of just looking at the tools. And with the Patriots, it's feel like with the offensive line, it's sort of similar. Now, Cole Strange is obviously a high first round draft pick, but the rest of these guys, it's a real gamble, which feels unfortunately. By the way, Tyrone Wheatley Jr., I remember when I was a student at Syracuse, his dad, who of course played at Michigan, he was coaching the running backs at Syracuse when Doug Marone was the head coach. And I just remember he was like this big recruit in the area. It's crazy that he's made this transition. I hope he works out. Like it'd be a great story. And obviously he's definitely worth a gamble considering he's a former tight end. So he's going to be incredibly athletic to transition a tackle. Like I'm excited that they took a gamble on him. It's just you shouldn't have gotten to a point where, hey, we may really need this guy to actually be good, right? Like, that's kind of where the Patriots are at. Exactly. And I like Tyrone Wheatley Jr. Again, he was in my fake tri uh, trades column the day I before the Patriots traded for him. So I feel good about Tyrone Wheatley Jr. But again, zero snaps played. And that's because right. he converted from tight end to offensive tackle just three, four years ago. And he wasn't good enough for the Bears or the Raiders or now most recently Browns. Bill Callahan had good things to say. And that guy's probably the best offensive line coach in the league. Yeah. That means a lot to me personally, but will he be good enough to play right away? Because he was their fifth offensive tackle. And for the Patriots, given their situation, not only just the health, but the talent of a Calvin Anderson or rather Reef approaching age 35 might be such that he's your number three. So I don't know. But yeah, I'll have that story out next week. Talk to a lot of people at Stony Brook. <laughs> like, can you imagine? This, is, this was the truth of that season, 2018. A guy played tight end at the FCS level at 310 pounds. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. Like, how yeah. do you cover them? How does uh, well, <laughs> I, I got some good stories, so stay tuned. But anyway, yeah. that's a lot of time around Wheatley Jr. for like five minutes. <laughs> yeah. No, I like it though. I don't want I don't want to spoil your story though. All right. Yeah. By the way, I I agree to a great point on Bill Callahan. Like if he says this guy has potential and he likes him, that's a good sign. I mean, I the only other guy I'd consider in the same light as Bill Callahan as an offensive line coach would be Patricia. I mean, that's pretty much the only other guy <laughs> <laughs> that's in his neighborhood. All right. So you mentioned the receiver group in your article as well. You wrote that Juju's knee is rumored to be a concern. You also mentioned Parker will miss some time. And you're completely right on that. He's never played 17 games. He played 16 games once. Last two seasons, 10 games and 13 games. So th these are two guys you're relying on as your top two receivers, essentially. One is banged up. And the other one has been last in a separation the past three years in the NFL. And I get he has a different type of skill set. 
But were there positive signs from these guys in training camp, or are you really concerned about the guys that are penciled in to be the Patriots' top two receivers? Um, so full disclosure, you know, I'm writing this column late Tuesday after a flurry of cuts and texting agents and people around players and people within the team trying to figure out what's going to happen. Bailey Zappi curveball, you know, throws goes right by all of us. And so I'm figuring, okay, what's what's my take from this day? And it was mostly about the offense alignment. If I had to write that column again, knowing Tyquan Thornton was probably going on IR, that would bring them down to five. Five is a totally reasonable number. Um, yeah. But there are some trust issues here with this group that overlap with their trust issues with the offensive linemen. That's why you have six and that your fourth and fifth receivers are going to be six round rookies. Now they're probably better tomorrow, Douglas and Kayshawn Booty than your average six round rookies, but that's what they are for now. For the guys at the top, Juju Smith-Schuster pushed back uh, today in a piece my former colleague, Kerry Garriga published about the health of his knee, which Albert Pierce said, quote, uh, could explode at any moment, to which I say, get everyone away from Juju Smith-Schuster <laughs> as soon as possible. We do not need any shrapnel or kneecaps flying around, especially Matt Jones. He said, no, that's not the case. If anything, it's getting better. To which I would say, okay, September is tomorrow. Now's not the time for getting better. Uh, it's the time just to be healthy. And it sounds like that's not the case. But Setting him aside, let's say he plays because he he was a participant in every practice this summer, took off OTAs. Maybe, maybe he's okay. Devontae Parker, the separation thing is an issue, but he was the best receiver in camp. That was a really okay. number for him. Like, I, I would feel good about him if I were a Patriots fan. I would feel great about Kendrick Bourne, who is the living embodiment of the worst cliche of every summer and every spring training and maybe NBA preseason. I don't know. He's in the best shape of his life. and Literally. Literally in the best shape of his life. So the top three guys you should feel comfortable about. There's still some question marks behind them. I'm excited for Pop Douglas. I think we might be getting too crazy now that Peter Schrager's is now tr moving up the hype train and wants to take on the conductor hat. Hey, good for Peter Schrager. Um, but I just, you want to see it. And I think everyone deserves that, given the last four or five years of getting excited about Patriots receivers, when the truth is they've still been in the bottom 10, 12, 15 in the league. That's probably where this group is going. But all told, they impressed me this summer. Uh, by the way, did Peter Schrager pay you anything to take that over? Because you're the one that's been saying for weeks that he's been a made man. You said it after the first preseason game that the reason that he wasn't playing or in, in the second game, too, when he came out early is he's already made the team. Like, do you get any royalties from this? Like, what the hell, man? If anyone uses the phrase made guy, OK, which obviously I'm copying from any number of just, you know, different mafia movies, The Sopranos or, or anything like then I might be upset. But no, I mean, we, we've all watched. Pop Douglas, put Miles Bryant in the blender, you know, and leave, which, okay, you want to knock on Miles Bryant, fine. Marcus Jones, Jack Jones, like, are still nursing ankle injuries from practices at the start of training camp because of just how quick this guy is, not actually nursing ankle injuries. But that he's been impressive, and we've all seen this, and the way the staff is treating him and the way he's being the focal point of certain plays, screens, um, different misdirections, even taking the ball in handoff sometimes. Like, that's a guy you're designing part of the offense around. That says everything you need to know about how the Patriots feel about him. Uh, by the way, you mentioned Kendrick Bourne in there, and I have been the president of both the Derek White fan club and the Kendrick Bourne <laughs> fan club for, like, basically two years now. The Derek White one, we have a lot more members. There's a lot more people that attend the meetings. The Kendrick Bourne one, and even when we talked a couple of weeks ago, right, this is before he started to really emerge in training camp, but I thought he had some outstanding plays in the game against the Packers, especially the one that he went up and got. So is there a chance he ends up being, like, their leading receiver? Like, do you have real expectations that he's going to be really good this season? Like, is it going to be, let's put it this way, will he be better than 2021? It's a great question. Uh, I don't know what his over under is for 
you know, his receiving yards this season, but I think it should be somewhere around like low 700s because he had 800 in 2021. The thing I would say though, is if he's the leading receiver for the Patriots this year, um, they were in trouble on offense because there's a reason you've paid Juju Smith-Schuster that money. There's right. a reason hey, Parker has looked so good this summer. I think it's comfort within the system. Finally, with Mac, they have him running the right route tree as opposed to just all these go routes where it's like a 40-yard check down for Mac against the Blitz, which is just, just throw it downfield if you have no other option. Like they're using him in, in a much better way. So I think Kendrick Bourne could because I think it speaks to something that was so rare last year, and that was trust. Like you look at the targets for Mac. Almost half of them went to Jacoby Myers reminder Stevenson. That was it. Two guys he trusted. Jacoby got open, played in the slot. Bourne is just a tear down in the trust tree, a branch down, whatever you want to call it. And so the fact that he plays in the slot outside is improving, I think is a really positive sign. And he was another guy that built through, you know, the courts of camp. Like he was invisible the first week. You're like, what the hell's wrong with this? But he's come on. And I think that trust will lend itself to at least like six, 700 yards a season. All right, so at least they'll be able to have some meetings this year as it pertains to Kendrick Bourne, which is a good thing. And I'm glad that you feel good about Pop Douglas and that Devontae Parker had a good camp as well. But it does bring me to sort of a bigger overarching thing that we've discussed before. If you look, just for the sake of this exercise, if you look at the playoff teams from last year, the Ravens, they have Mark Andrews. They added OBJ and Zay Flowers in the draft, of course. The Bengals, they have Chase and Higgins. The Dolphins, they have Hill and Waddle. The Bills... Diggs, they added Dalton Kincaid, right? The Chargers, they have Mike Williams, Keenan Allen. They added Quentin Johnson in the first round. Even if you, you don't like him as a player, they did add a first-round receiver. Jacksonville, they paid Christian Kirk. People trashed him on that contract, but he was over 1,100 yards last season. And they get Ridley back from suspension. Dallas, they have CeeDee Lamb. They bring in Brandon Cooks, who I, I'll never understand why the Patriots didn't like Brandon Cooks. They traded him for a first-round pick. I thought he was great the year Brady won the MVP. The Bucks, they had Evans and Godwin for Brady last year. Seattle... They have Metcalf and Lockett. They added Jackson, Smith, and Jigba in the first round. San Francisco, Debo, IU, Kittle. The Giants, it's the one team that doesn't really have a great receiver, but they go out there and they add Darren Waller, who's a good pass catcher. The Vikings, Justin Jefferson, best receiver in the game, him or Devontae Adams in my mind. They add Jordan Addison in the first round. They have Justin Jefferson. They add Jordan Addison. Eagles, A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, Goddard. Chiefs, Kelsey, one of the greatest tight ends of all time. So, And they have the best quarterback, like, since Brady, right? So the large majority of the last year's playoff teams have two weapons better than the Patriots. And these are not random teams, Callahan. These are playoff teams, teams that were actually in the postseason. And all these teams made real investments in that position. The Patriots used a second rounder on Thornton a couple of years ago. That could just be a whiff. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, he's dealing with an injury. We saw Josh McDaniels and Dave Ziegler trade for Devontae Adams when they got to Las Vegas. Now, clearly the Vegas situation is a mess, but it tells you that they wanted a legit bona fide number one receiver. So this is a bill philosophy right now, or this, like if Josh was here or Ziggler was here, maybe they'd be pushing for one of these guys. Maybe they don't have the power to do it when they were at the Patriots. But my point being is great receivers and great weapons in the passing game. The reality in 2023 and last year in 2022, they win you games in the NFL. So why are the Patriots sort of ignoring the direction that the league's going, especially considering the Brady guy's not playing quarterback anymore. As you mentioned earlier, it's a guy that is sort of the point guard of the offense. Why have they ignored like the big ticket items when it comes to this? So I think there's a part of Belichick that realizes, okay, you know, when I build an offense, how would I defend it? And so with receivers, he's made 
a living, a career, a Hall of Fame career out of, as everyone talks about, making you play left-handed, doubling your number one receiver, go elsewhere other than your best players. The Panthers, of course, are not as good at that anymore. Just ask Stefan Diggs. But I think there's a part of that. <laughs> the other thing I would push on is the idea that they totally eschew some elite weapons. Because the larger point when it comes to drafting them or signing them, they just suck at it. Okay, like Brandon Cooks. Good point. That's a good point. Because they traded a first-round pick for him in 2017. That's real investment. 2019, they spent another first-round pick in a receiver. It was Nikhil Harry. Nikhil Harry sucks. Okay? But months later, when Nikhil Harry's hurt and not panning out, and Josh Gordon's heavier than he was in 2018, and things look down, they go out and sign Antonio Brown because he's a distressed asset. Two years later, they give a two-year, $22 million contract to Nelson Aguilar, which is still the richest contract they've given for a receiver in recent team history, including Juju Smith-Schuster when you look at the guarantees versus the total money. Nelson Aguilar stinks, okay? So that's where we are with all of these different players is they make the investment. He wants a value and understanding that, okay, if I just take away Devontae Adams, which a lot of teams did last year, I might go 6-11. and 11. And that's exactly what the Raiders did. Partly because their defense obviously has many holes in it as, you know, a screen, screen door. But ultimately, I think they just are bad at drafting receivers. Tech One Thornton's probably the latest example. And when it comes to spending money, teams just outbid them because they would rather squeeze value from mid-tier, mid-level veterans and get enough of those where those guys are more likely to outperform their contract than Tyree Kill, who's making 20 plus some odd million dollars. And if he gets hurt, that's a sunk cost. And whether or not that's right, it probably isn't in this league, but I think that's how they look at it. That makes a lot of sense, though. First of all, they have screwed up a lot of the draft picks, and I still don't understand why you would trade away a first-round pick for Cooks and then, or trade for Cooks for a first-round, and then the next year you trade. And would that was that be Isaiah Wynn or Michelle? Whatever one of those picks, right? Because isn't that when they trade? Which was a good piece of business. You know, you trade a first-round pick, rent a guy for a year, get a first-round pick back from the Rams, but... You know, like, of course, they would like to have a receiver of the caliber of Brandon Cooks. I mean, he's he's on the back end of his career, certainly. But they're yeah. they're they wanted Tyquan Thornton to be that kind of take the top off the defense type of receiver. I don't think Brandon Cooks was a great fit with Brady. Uh, but yeah, you, you'd take him right now. But that's a, Yeah, that's a good point, though, in terms of like the Devontae Adams thing where Bill says, hey, if I take this guy away, then we're going to stop the Raiders offense, hypothetically. So they want to build it with more depth, which I disagree with sort of the idea there, because if you do look two through, say it's hypothetically two through four, I like Parker, Juju, and Bourne. It's just you don't have the number one guy, and their philosophy is more so about having the depth than the opposite of having like that one big guy at the top. So that makes sense, I guess. I mean, I don't agree with the philosophy, but I understand like their idea. All right, so Mike Isecki said his confidence in Mac Jones is really high, which I like to hear that. And if you look at these tight ends, Gasecki in 2021, before he really wasn't involved as much last year because of McDaniel's offense, 73 receptions, fifth among tight ends, 15 contested catches tied for a second among tight ends, 2020, fourth among tight ends in yards at 703. Henry in 2021, like people forget, like he had a good season, nine touchdowns that was tied for first, 120.7 rating when targeted, that was fifth. So the Patriots, based on the talent level they have at the skill positions, you're going to have to win with scheme and execution, right? Not just talent. So what's your expectation for the two tight ends? And how much do you think they dig into those guys being on the field together, especially now, obviously, Gasecki's making his way back from that shoulder situation? So I don't give out much fantasy advice. Um, I get a little annoyed when I have good friends who pop up into my mentions or text this time of year, be like, oh, how's this? Unless we're really close, I'm probably not going to give you that good info. But you are a good friend, so I'll give you some info and some advice because All I right. do 
twice a year. Reminder, Stevenson was my guy last season. That obviously panned out. Hunter Henry, I think, is a legitimate fantasy if he's exists anymore. Sleeper because of his trust, connection, and consistency with Mac Jones. No one had a better connection with Mac, practice to practice, than Hunter Henry. Like on the list of Mac Jones's favorite things, okay, there's his Alabama championship ring. Ice cream is somewhere high up there. Another thing is a seam pass to Hunter Henry. He just gets to float it out there with some nice feathery touch, and there's a tight end running down who's going to catch the ball. And Hunter Henry was misused last year, I think, as much as any player in that offense. They asked him to pass protect far too often because the offensive lineman couldn't do it. Right tackle wasn't a revolving door. It was a black hole. Okay, so he's stuck there having to stand next to the black hole and fend off all these defensive linemen and not go out into routes and catch passes. He's going to go out this year and he's going to go out in red zone and third down in a way that I think we saw in 2021. So if you have a late round flyer and you don't know who to take and you need a tight end one and a half, I would go with Hunter Henry. As for Mike Kosicki, I don't think he'll match those numbers from 2021 because his position is really, you know, receiver tight end hybrid. That's what he's been his whole career. I covered Mike going back to his Penn State days. And so he's going to be battling Kendrick Bourne for snaps as who's the fifth skill position player that they want out there because it's going to be a reminder Stevenson at running back, Hunter Henry at tight end, and then Juju and Devontae Parker at receiver. So that fifth spot is up to either Gasicki or Bourne. It'll be partly based on the matchup, part on health. Mike has a, a shoulder injury right now. He's still wearing a wrap on it in practice, um, but he's out of the red non-contact jersey, which is a good sign. So I'm not sure what to make of Gasicki yet, but even if they do deploy him with Hunter Henry, they're going to run more 11 personnel, three receiver concepts because anytime Mike Kosicki's in line, the defense knows they're not running in his direction. You can't trust the front <laughs> behind him. He's not a blocker. He's not a real tight end. And so it's just a matter of playing time. And for the folks in fantasy, I know I talk about all the time, what's your opportunity? What's your playing time going to be like? And Mike Kosicki's is a little hazy because if Kendrick Bourne's better, maybe they run with him. Yeah, I like it. I like the Hunter Henry advice, too, because I got a draft coming up. That's going to be my guy, Hunter Henry. I like Hunter Henry. He's a good player, man. I And you're right. I mean, they totally misused him. I mean, we talked about the Kendrick Bourne doghouse all last year, but Hunter Henry was like, dude, this guy was good in 2021. Where is he? Why isn't he involved? And he was on the field. It's just like he wasn't involved as much in the passing game. All right, so Jack Jones, 192nd out of 214 corners in coverage grade this preseason via PFF. And I'm not saying pro football focus is the be-all, end-all, but I'm just pointing it out. Really good rookie season. He had the issues with the knee, skipping rehab sessions, that stuff. And now we know he has the stuff going on off the field. Then you have Christian Gonzalez. He's about first-round pick. We all like to pick, but he's about to be thrown into NFL action. Jonathan Jones dealt with an injury in camp. So how are you feeling about this group, especially considering I was looking through the schedule? This is how they start off. A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith. Then you have Hill and Waddle. Then you have Garrett Wilson. Then you have C.D. Lamb and Brandon Cooks. Then you have Chris Olave. We'll see about Michael Thomas, his situation. Of course, he hasn't been on the field recently. Devontae Adams, Stephon Diggs, then Hill and Waddle again, and then Terry McLaurin. It is a ridiculous run of receivers that the Patriots are going up against. How are you feeling about this group? So I wrote and said after the first week, maybe called 10 days of training camp, that Christian Gonzalez is one of the best players in the field. That hasn't been true since. He's not been among the bottom 10 players on the roster, but things got different when they put the pads on. I think you've seen it in the preseason, not just because he's getting bowled over in his first actual NFL snap preseason included back against Houston three weeks ago, but it's just a sense of, you know, that's real football. And the concerns with him were about physicality which is to say not that I'm worried about him long-term. I think he's going to be a really good player. But I think the first few weeks, because of those matchups and that Jonathan Jones hasn't played football 
in basically a month and he's back at practice, but he's limited, is an issue. And who knows about Jack Jones? But if Jack Jones is off the field, that means probably Marcus Jones, five foot eight, is going to play outside corner where they've had him a lot this summer. I don't like that decision. We've all seen the Ellis Hobbs story. We know how that ends. Plaxico Burris dunking you in the end zone to win the Super Bowl. I don't want that to happen to Marcus Jones for the Patriots. But that's Higgins flashbacks from last season. Exactly. And Marcus Jones is a really good player, but outside corners is not his best position. So I think there's a wide variance here. A lot of different outcomes that we could have. I think they would lean towards the lower end of that spectrum and a lot of danger in the first four weeks. But there's a way to curb this because what people missed at the end of last season um, unless they were reading literally every film review that I put out there, is the Patriots pivoted to being a zone-heavy defense the last four to six weeks of the season. They played a lot more quarters, more cover two, just two high structures that took a lot a load off these corners. You don't have to play man-to-man. Just take care of this area, pass off the right receivers. And they were pretty good. Hill and Waddle, even if they were catching passes from Teddy Bridgewater and you know what's left of Skylar Thompson, like they didn't have a big impact on that game. And so... They kept the Cincinnati Bengals to 24 points. Do they take the same game plan and approach here against all those teams that you mentioned? I don't know, but we'll see. But it's it's a group that I think we'll feel a lot better about probably around Halloween and after than we do the first four to six weeks. All right. And I do feel like I don't feel bad for Christian Gonzalez. He's making a lot of money to play cornerback in the NFL. But having that slate of receivers to go up against, I mean, I know it's going to be tough to like go back in history to figure it out. Like if anyone's had a tougher slate to start their career, I can't imagine it because the receiver position has never been deeper in the NFL. It's just a gauntlet to start off his NFL career, but who knows? Maybe this makes him into a great player. And in year two, he turns out to be one of the best corners in the NFL. All right, Callahan, before we let you go, make the case for the Patriots being a playoff team. Like what has to happen for them to get in? Mac Jones is the best we've ever seen. him. I would say that's already happened this summer. So that's the biggest possible box you could check. The culture in locker room has normalized. This was a broken team last year. There was no trust on offense in mid-November. I wrote about it at the time. Go back and find that cold film review if you like. If not, look ahead with me to Bill O'Brien and what he's done for this offense that I think will not only be modernized, but support Mac and the players around it even better than Josh McDaniels did in 2021. So that means better receivers. That means a better quarterback. The offensive line's a real question. But three weeks ago, I was writing, they're already working around this with the RPOs, play mm-hmm. actions, and all of the quick game. So Bill O'Brien knows what he's getting into. And when you look at the other players, I would also mention a lot of these guys are in contract years. So you're going to get the best out of Hunter Henry. Maybe not for the team, but for his next deal. The best out of Kendrick Bourne, Trent Brown, defensively, Kyle Duggar, and Josh Uche. And this defense, I think, could have the best pass rush of the Belichick era. 54 sacks last year. Now you have Keon White. <laughs> who is like, I think I saw in a rewatch of Space Jam recently because he was one of the monsters. Like, that's what this (laughs) in the locker room without pads on. And with pads on, he is hunting quarterbacks, looking to drive them into the ground. And he's he's successful. Just watch that Texans preseason game again. So you add that pass rush. Even if there are questions at corner, the middle of this defense is going to be really strong. Juwan Bentley had a super underrated season last year. You go back to Duggar, Adrian Phillips, Jabril Peppers is another guy I think is going to have a breakout season. It's a deep defense, it's multiple, and they're going to have an exceptional pass rush. So if they can work around the offensive line, which will get healthy, by the way, Cole Strange and Michael Wendell might be able to start week one. It's a better coach team with a better quarterback, and the schedule is a murderer's row. Don't get me wrong, but the penalties and mistakes that held them back last year should be gone. We saw very few of them in training camp. And when you throw all of that together, this is a team that I think is going to be willing to go a little extra 
and be able to execute that because of everything they didn't have last year is now in place. And so I, I think they're going to make a push and I think they're going to surprise people. I think nine and eight is uh, 10 and seven is where they're headed. Yeah, I like the plus 250. I think it is. I have it here. The boat, the Patriots just getting into the playoffs like they're good odds. And for them to go over eight and a half, thanks to our friends at FanDuel, I have all this. It's plus 210 to go over eight and a half at FanDuel. Plus nine and a half or over nine and a half is plus 350. Pats to make the playoffs is plus 250. I think there's good value on that. And the other thing I'd say is just the Jets. Like, we'll see if that offensive line is good. Like we talk about the Patriots. It was really, really bad last year. And then Tua, who had a great season last year and the Dolphins, like Mike McDaniel, everybody loves him. If you look down the stretch of that season, even the games that Tua played in, it felt like teams kind of figured out that offense. I'm not saying like it, they still have Waddle and Hill, right? So, I mean, it could turn out that they're one of the best offenses in the NFL, but we'll see if that offense is as electric as it was until Tua had his first injury. So that's part of the calculus, too, is, hey, are the Jets and the Dolphins as good as everybody thinks they're going to be? But I can't wait, man. A week from Sunday, we're going to have actual football and Tom Brady is going to be in the building, man. It's incredible. He's going to be in the building and he's not going to be playing quarterback. I had someone relayed that to me that that's an actual talking point. I would just refer you to the Lays and Pepsi commercial where he and Edelman are joking about that, as well as Emmett Smith and Randy Moss. So if you think Randy Moss is going to come back and play football and Emmett Smith, uh, then yeah, maybe Tom Brady is. But no, it'll be a spectacular day. I've said this to everyone who's asked. I don't know if they'll have a better record. I think they will, but they will have a lot more fun. And you and I will have a lot more fun watching the team talking about it because they're going to play good teams. There are real stakes here every single week. And in texting with some of the guys on the team, frankly, they've said, yeah, there are no breaks here. You know, it's not in division anymore, even though they haven't lost to the Jets since Obama was in office. Like they understand the challenge ahead. I think they're gearing up for it. They've had a really good summer and uh, fans should feel good. Yeah, and to your Brady point, I don't know if he could play right now. He is looking real lean, man. Like I don't I don't think he could take a hit. I think he'd be done after one he hit. Didn't. Last year, you know, after yeah. like ramping up in the whole offseason and getting healthy and, you know, actual football activities like this is not something you pick up a helmet and go play. This is you start in March and you get in shape and you learn your playbook and you practice and you go into parks, sometimes illegally during COVID to make sure that happens. And then you can- <laughs> I forgot about that. Like, of course, he didn't need any reps in the preseason, but like this is a process that you were jumping in and the last step, you know, of the ladder. And he's looking up from the bottom going, how the F do you expect me to get there? Like, I, I'm not anywhere close to there. <laughs> I totally forgot about that COVID thing he got in trouble for. All right. That is it. That is Andrew Callahan from the Herald. The Pats interference pod has a pot up right now with Doug Kide from the Herald as well. Callahan, thank you so much for the time and appreciate it. And hey, man, just get to the season. You're close. So close. Can't wait. Thanks, buddy. Get your game day gear because college football is back and FanDuel wants you to join in on the fun. Right now, all customers can get a no-sweat bet for Week 1. Just place a bet on any Week 1 college football game and you'll get bonus bets back if you don't win. So a couple of games I'm looking at coming up this weekend. I like North Carolina with Drake May to cover the 2.5 against South Carolina. I like LSU in that huge Sunday night game to cover the 2.5 against Florida State. That's a huge game, 8 versus 5. And I like Clemson to cover the 13 against Duke on Labor Day night. Just visit FanDuel.com slash Pike and kick off the college football season with America's number one sportsbook. 21 plus in present in select states. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Max refund $5 unless otherwise specified. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com.
Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there, as always, from Callahan. I am so hyped up that we're getting closer to the start of the season. We can actually talk about real games instead of predicting what's going to happen. I cannot wait for the Patriots and the Eagles coming up a week from Sunday. All right, I did want to touch on this, though, because obviously a lot of you watched, unfortunately, what transpired at Fenway really since Sunday when they lose the finale to the Dodgers. They get swept by the Houston Astros, and the season is ultimately over for the Red Sox at this particular juncture. And I'm really starting to think with Heim Bloom, I felt like for a while for the majority of the season, like he's safe. A lot of these young guys are playing well. He upgraded the bullpen, all that different type of stuff. And I still believe that Heim Bloom is going to be running this organization in 2024, even though it's not a lock like it was a couple of days ago or a couple of weeks ago. And I just look at this in terms of the Bloom era. If you look at the Bloom era, which started in 2020, the Red Sox defense They're at minus 110 outs above average. That is dead last 30th in Major League Baseball. They've made 330 errors, 30th. So Heim Bloom has shown so far, at least at the big league level, he's incapable of putting together a good defensive team. If you look at the pitching, 455 ERA since 2020, that's 22nd. The FIP is 429, which is 19th. The WHIP, 139, which is 26th. The 258 opponents batting average, 27th. Home runs per nine innings, 1.26, that's 22nd. The hard hit rate, the ball's off the bat, 95 plus, that's at 39.7%, which is 25th. So he hasn't put together a good pitching staff over the past couple of years. He made some upgrades this year to the bullpen, but the rotation, as we mentioned earlier this week, has been an absolute dumpster fire. And the defense has basically been an issue since he's taken over the organization. So here's the thing. These are the problems that Heimblum has. And we've outlined what we want them to do in the offseason and all that. And I'll get into that in greater detail as we get closer to that point. But the point being is what we've been sold from High Bloom is long-term sustainability. And what I'll say is that long-term sustainability has to start to happen in 2024 because it is so great that he's upgraded the farm system. And you can't argue to the contrary. Like he really has. The farm system has improved tremendously and we'll see what these guys ultimately are when they get to the big league level right we've seen a little bit of Raffaella and the guy's an exceptional fielder and all that and he had a hit in his first appearance as a player which is great to see and all that different type of stuff but what we need to see in 2024 is this Red Sox team actually needs to be a contender right because if not in 2024 what are you going to say oh 2025 was actually the target the target has been 2024 they were ahead of schedule in terms of where they were at i would just say it's because you had a bunch of good players left over from dave dombrowski in 2021 like that team had a lot of good players on it so when you look at this going forward like avaldi was great that year devers was great that year jd had a good year like all that right so that was basically winning with dave dombrowski's players but my whole point with this is just at some point we have to see results at the major league level and what Bloom hasn't proven yet, and I'm not saying that he can't do this, he has to prove that he can put together a winner at the major league level. Because quite frankly, we just haven't seen that in terms of the results yet. And if the goal is long-term sustainability, that has to start at some point, right? Like year one of the sustainability has to start at some point, and that has to be 2024 when you're getting a lot of these young players up. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is this, and this is just a note I wanted to mention. <laughs> Because it feels like it's Mookie Betts week in Major League Baseball. And we also him embarrass the Red Sox and really the Red Sox brass at Fenway. In August, Mookie Betts is 2.7 wins above replacement via fan graphs. 
Red Sox outfielders and second baseman, because Mookie has been going back and forth between outfield and second base, which is remarkable. It'd be amazing to have a guy like that. Are at 1.9 wins above replacement, according to Fangraphs. So Mookie in August, 2.7 wins above replacement. The Red Sox, 1.9. So when we talk about Heim Bloom in terms of his future with the organization, ownership has to think about things now. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You told us that we couldn't give this guy the money, right? Like, you didn't want to pay this guy. And look, a lot of it's ownership, too. Maybe they didn't want to pay Mookie bets, right? Like, all that different type of stuff. But that guy is not on our team. That guy that just came into Fenway Park. So <laughs> it is kind of eye-opening to look at stuff like that. All right, so I did want to mention this. So if you look at the great organizations across the sport right now, they do a really good job developing starting pitchers. So if you go to the 2020 World Series champ, the Dodgers with our friend Mookie Betts. But that was the COVID year. They win the World Series. After Clayton Kershaw in their rotation, the next four guys in innings pitched that season were all under club control. Dustin May, Julio Urias, Tony Gosselin, and Walker Bueller. May was pre-arbitration, just north of half a mil. Gosselin was pre-arbitration, just north of half a mil. Bueller was pre-arbitration, just north of 600,000. Urias made 1 million in arbitration that year. So now those dollar figures are a little bit lower because of the COVID situation. But the point is, you basically paid nothing for four starting pitchers. In that postseason, Bueller was outstanding, 25 innings, 180 ERA. Urias was phenomenal, 23 innings, 117 ERA. So you got innings during the regular season out of those guys under club control, and you got big-time performances in the postseason. If you look at the 2021 Braves when they won the World Series... Second innings pitch that year for them was Max Fried, and of course, Charlie Morton led them in innings pitch. Third innings pitch was Ann Anderson, and fifth in innings pitch was Hey Oscar Yanoa. So, Fried that year, one year, 3.5 million in arbitration. Anderson pre arb, he was at one year just under 600,000. Yanoa was pre arb just south of 600,000. Freed threw 27 and two-thirds in the postseason, by far the most on the Braves, more than 10 innings, more than anybody else. Anderson was second at 17 innings at 149. And remember, Morton ended up getting banged up in the postseason. And Anderson won game three of the World Series and Freed won game six of the World Series. So even when the guy that was the ace of the staff, right, the established guy was dealing with an injury, these young pitchers are really good for Atlanta. Then you look at the 2022 Astros, the team that just won. Valdez, 201 innings and a third during the regular season, most on the team. By the way, we just saw him shove against the Red Sox on Wednesday. That guy's phenomenal. Jose Arquiti was third, Luis Garcia was fourth, and Christian Javier was fifth. Veldez was one of the best pitchers in the sport last year, and he was making one, he, he was in arbitration, three million in arbitration that year. Arquiti pre-arbitration, 750,000. And Arquiti's not a great pitcher, but the point is he ate up innings for them during the regular season. Garcia, 1.2 million in pre-arbitration. Javier, pre-arbitration that year, just south of $750,000. So Javier, who has not been great this year, he did throw a no-hitter in the World Series. Valdez was 4-0 with a 144 ERA. He led the team with 25 innings. So Valdez was really good for them, of course, in the postseason. Javier threw a no-hitter. So look, not all these guys turn out to be great long-term, and some of them may not even factor into the postseason, right? But some of these guys, like the Buellers, the Ureases of the world, the Freeze, the Anderson, the Valdezes, they really contribute. And some turn into great long-term pitchers as well, like the guy we just alluded to with Framber Valdez. But the point is, all these teams won the World Series. So for the Dodgers, four out of their top five guys in innings that year won cheap, cost-control deals. For the Braves, it was three out of their top five. For the Astros, it was four out of their top five. 
Okay, and so having that allows you to pay other guys. The Braves, they brought in Charlie Morton. The Astros, they had Verlander on a big money deal, and they just brought him back. So you can do it in other ways in terms of winning a World Series. This is just what we've seen over the past three years. But, and we saw the Sox do it differently in 18, right? Where they had traded for sale. They gave David Price the big money deal. They traded for Erod, who was under club control. And they traded for Rick Porcello and they had Nate, right? So you can do it in different ways. It's just more difficult to do it in a different way. Because if you think about it, if you can develop those young pitchers, it's sort of like a cheat code, right? We talk about the NFL in terms of the rookie quarterback contracts all the time being a cheat code, but it's certainly that is true also in Major League Baseball with starting pitchers. And you want a surplus because we know how often pitchers get injured, right? So if you look at all these organizations, they have their homegrown great players too, right? Like the Braves won, Freeman was their guy, Elbies was their guy, Acuna was hurt that year, but they had Austin Riley. The Dodgers, they had Smith, they had Seager, the Astros, Bregman, Pena, El Tuve's been their guy forever, forever, et cetera. So you develop your own players too. But the pitching is what separates those teams from other organizations like the Red Sox right now. Like the Red Sox, they had a bunch of really good homegrown prospects recently, right? When we talk about Mookie, Benintendi, Bogarts, Raffi, right? But they never had that starting pitching to go along with it that was homegrown. So what I'm looking at is in terms of this current Red Sox group is... I told you what I want them to do, like their number one priority. Well, first of all, they have to get better defensively. That goes without saying. I mean, that's the obvious. So the worst defensive team in the sport, but they need to get a top end of the line, top end starter, no doubt about it. But they really need someone or maybe two guys other than Brian Bayo of their young pitchers to emerge in the rotation. So we talked on Tuesday how Bayo was not great in that loss, and he needs to get better against lefties, 291 opponents batting average, 843 OPS. We've talked about this a bunch, but for a 24-year-old to give you 23 starts, and he already has 131 innings, it's impressive. Brian Bayo is a positive development. I mean, you can argue he's the most positive thing we've seen with the Red Sox this season. And we already know that he's going to get a shit ton of outs on the ground, right? The ground ball rate this season, 55.2%. That is third in all of Major League Baseball among starters ahead of Sandy Alcantara, who won the Cy Young Award last year in the National League. So Bayo is going to be outstanding. He had a really, really good season, and he isn't even arbitration eligible until the 2027 season. And now the end of the season, what Bayo's job is, hey, learn how to get out lefties more consistently. That's what he needs to do, because if you do that, you go into the 2024 season, you feel really good about Bayo. You already feel really good, but then you feel like, oh, this guy's going to be an absolute ace. All right. So that's one young starter you have going forward that has been established already. Bayo's a guy, he's a made man in the rotation, to use the Callahan thing that he says about Demario Douglas. He's a made man, Bayo's a made man. Okay, so you look at the rest of the rotation. Sale will be here. Who knows what you get in terms of innings? Paxton is a free agent. Kluber has a club option for $11 million. <laughs> I don't think that's getting picked up. So you have Bayo, Sale, other big ticket item I'm penciling in, like... If they don't get a big ticket item, they're idiots, right? So they got to get a big ticket item. So that's three guys in your rotation. And like I said, with sale, we don't know about the health, but okay. So then you're going to need two other spots, maybe even three other spots because of sale, right? So I think you got to rule Whitlock out of this in terms of being a starter. We've been over it. He can't stay healthy in the rotation. He hasn't been good when he's been in the rotation. Now, Hauk is interesting. Can Hauk be a guy that is in the rotation next year? Because if you look at his last four starts, and this includes the one where he took the line drive off the face against the Yankees, needed the surgery. 
In his last four starts, he has an opponent's batting average of 222. Good numbers, and he's done a really good job keeping the ball on the ground. The launch angle over those past four starts is 1.7 degrees. The ground ball rate is 59.6% over his last four. That's even better than Bayo. Think about that. And if you look at other qualified starters this season, in terms of this year, only one starter is north of 59% in terms of ground ball rate. That's Logan Webb. Right now, Tanner Houck's last four is at 59.6%. There's only two qualified starters that have a launch angle south of two. As we mentioned with Houck, it's at 1.7, Alex Cobb and Logan Webb. So everything right now for Tanner Houck is on the ground. Like, these are really positive developments with Houck. And one of the things that if you want to stay aboard and watch the Red Sox down the stretch of the season, this is a thing to monitor how Houck looks in the rotation. And the big thing here is he's actually been better the second time through the order than he was prior. So second time through the order, opponents are hitting 233. In his career, that number has been at 268. So he's cut that down, which is obviously if you're going to be a starter, you got to go through the order a couple of times. That's been an issue for Oak throughout his career. It's been better. And I get it, small sample size, but these are some of the things we're going to try to figure out during the stretch run here for the Red Sox. Not really the stretch run, the latter portion of the season, because it's no run. I mean, they're not going anywhere. Okay. The other big thing during this stretch is he's been better against lefties. So if you look at the on-base percentage against lefties, it's way down from where it was. It's down more than 40 points. Okay. So it's still not great, but it's getting better. So for those reasons, like he has the ability now to get out lefties. He's always had the ability, but he needed to sort of harness his stuff. He's going through the order the second time, and he had sort of an inability to get lefties out consistently as a starter. He's been better recently with that. And what we've seen is he's added a cutter this year. So lefties, he's throwing his cutter 25% of the time. Second most used pitched. The expected batting average is 207, okay? The actual is 222. So that cutter has been really effective against left-handed hitters. So he's found basically a substitute for his fastball, right? Because that pitch had not been effective. The two-seamer or the four-seamer had not been effective against lefties. Now he has a cutter that basically acts as a fastball. And then he has his slider against lefties where they hit just 206. So now with this development of the cutter, he can go deeper into games because he has the ability to get lefties out more frequently. Like it really feels like now Hulk has a plan to get out lefties consistently. So I'm starting to believe that this could be a real option for the Red Sox in the rotation this year for Tanner Houck. And the thing that has always infuriated me about Tanner Houck, stuff-wise, how many guys are better than Tanner Houck on the staff? His stuff has always been great, but he's had issues with command, he's had issues with control, and he's had issues against lefties and going through the lineup the second time through. Maybe what we're going to see here down the stretch of the season, he actually does have it. Because I've always doubted Tanner Houck in the rotation for those reasons. But what we've seen over the last four I'm starting to believe that he could be a guy in the rotation in 2024. Now, the other guy is Cutter Crawford. Now, Crawford, he got his teeth kicked in on Wednesday. He was bad. There's no way around it. He just did not have it. Struggled with his command. He gave up six earned and just two and two thirds. Like, he was horrible, horrible on Wednesday. But the numbers, if you look at it, obviously are way better as a reliever than a starter, which that's going to be expected. But I just wonder how difficult it is for him in particular this year where he's had to go back and forth. I'm a reliever, I'm a starter, I'm a reliever, I'm a starter, right? It just cannot be easy. And they did it out of desperation, right? But the Sox, I, I just feel like they fucked around with this too much over the past few years with Houck, with Whitlock, and with Crawford, where these guys are going back and forth in between roles. So if you just give Crawford and you say, entering 2024, he's in the rotation with Bayo Sale, big ticket item, and Tanner Houck. 
I think he throws the ball much better than he did. And he's thrown the ball really well this year. It's just he's had some of these games as a starter. And you do wonder if he's wearing down a little bit as well. But he's actually been slightly better against lefties than righties because the four-seamer plays really well against lefties, and he throws it about 40% of the time. With righties, I think it's a small adjustment. He throws his cutter almost 30% of the time and the four-seamer 37% of the time. And the cutter gets hit. So I think it's the sweeper that he's going to develop more because the sweeper has been effective against righties at 152. So I think that's the pitch where he goes back to the lab. He works on that. And you may have something against righties and lefties now. So besides go, and so this is a positive development. If you think that he, those two guys can be in your rotation, because then you match them with Bayo and Sale, and then you go out and you get a big ticket on him. So besides going out and getting that premium starter, I believe that these two guys, Crawford and Hulk, because these are the guys that I think can do it. I don't believe Whitlock can do it. I'd rather Winkowski be in the bullpen. These two guys are very important to the success of the team in 2024 because you're going, basically, if you don't get those guys, I don't, like, what we've seen, low-rent shopping, right, for the Klubras of the world. How can Crawford, they both have stuff? You just hope that these guys can be consistent because if those guys are in the rotation and they're giving you five, six innings a start, right, that's what you're asking for is, hey, get me to the seventh inning, get me to the sixth inning because if you look at the bullpen, if those two guys can be starters, you have Winkowski, who was really good this year, Pavetta, Whitlock, a healthy Whitlock, let's say, hopefully. You have high leverage guys in Martin and Jansen. So there's just been too much flip-flopping with these guys. So Winkowski, despite wearing down 70 innings out of the bullpen, which is the third most of any reliever, 309 ERA, so good numbers. Pavetta, as a reliever, 165 opponents, opponents batting average, was, which is eighth among relievers. 34.8% strikeout rate, which is seventh among relievers. So he's been a real weapon out there. Starter, not good, as we've outlined. Reliever, really good. So the Hulk and Crawford pieces are just really, really huge for this organization. And look, I'm not saying this gets you to the World Series like those other teams, the Dodgers, the Braves, and the Astros. I'm not putting Hulk and Crawford in the conversation with those other pitchers, right? But just having those guys plugs holes, right? The bullpen games, the openers, the switching roles, not having enough in the pen because those guys are worn down. This is your answer. If Crawford and Hulk can be starting pitchers for the Red Sox in 2024, it brings them to a totally different level. And I've always believed that Crawford has the stuff and I'm starting to buy into the Hulk situation. So if you're looking for something to monitor down the stretch of the season, obviously Crawford, as we mentioned, last game was not great for him. But monitor Hulk and Crawford. See if you think these guys can actually be part of the rotation because if they are, the solutions in the rotation become a lot, lot easier. All right, coming up next, I do want to get to a call and a quick Celtics note. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
you might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Do have time for one call, so let's mix that in. The number is 617-396-7172. Hey, Brian. Eric from Portland, Oregon here. Uh, I'll try to make this quick. Curious to get your thoughts on this. I, I kind of feel like the Sox and the Pats are in almost exactly the same boat right now. I feel like coming into this season, the Sox goal was not to win the World Series because there was no universe in which that was ever going to happen. Uh, the goal was, can we rebound from a pretty pathetic 2022 and show that we are at least moving in, in the right direction? And there's a potential that in a season or two, this could be an actual good, maybe even contending team. And I kind of feel like that's exactly where the Pats are right now. Terrible season, last season. Not terrible, but definitely not good. Um, and now it's kind of like, okay, we're seeing some signs that they might be better. Can they deliver on that promise? Can they be a competent team again and give us hope that next season or the season after they'll be back in the title chase? Um, so it's kind of hard for me to get too upset with what's going on with the Sox right now because they just there was no universe where they were going to win the title this season or really even come close. And I feel the same about the Pats. That's why I wasn't really that upset about not getting – uh, DeAndre Hopkins, because what, what's he going to do for you? Like, best case, maybe they win a playoff game. Uh, that's it. Um, so I, I, I just feel like, you know, my hope is that, you know, going into the past season when they're four and six or five and eight or whatever, I hope that I'll still be this sanguine about it. And I'll say, okay, well, yeah, that's kind of what we expected, but they look okay. There's been some positive signs. So, um, I don't know. That's just kind of my thoughts on it. Like, I think tempered expectations should be the norm with these two teams, at least for these current seasons, and we'll see about next year. Uh, that's all. Great job with the pod. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. All right. Appreciate it. So I think a couple of things can be true there. So I understand your point about being realistic about expectations, but I think at the same point, we can also be aggravated and upset with what we've seen with the Red Sox this season. Because even if you didn't think they were a legitimate, bona fide World Series contender this year, it should have been better, right? Like, we shouldn't have been going through all these games where it's bullpen games, it's openers, and to the point where it basically, the roof caved in in on you. Like, that shouldn't have happened. Like, you shouldn't continue to be the worst team defensively in Major League Baseball. So we can understand the realistic expectations, but you can't continue to lose games with your defense and your lack of depth in terms of the pitching. That stuff, from my perspective, is controllable. But to your point about next year, or in terms of they aren't there yet, next year, and I mentioned this earlier, they have to be the team that is competing for a World Series. Not to say they have to get to the World Series, but they have to get into the playoffs, and they have to look like a team that has taken a massive step forward and looks like a contender. And that, to me, I feel like the Red Sox are a lot closer to that than the Patriots are. And I know it like it looks really bad for the Red Sox right now, but a couple of pieces, a couple of tweaks here and there, the Red Sox can be competitive once again. I mean, we saw it at times this year where they're beating the Rangers in series, right? So they're beating, they before they got swept by the Blue Jays, what? They had won seven in a row against Toronto. Like we've seen good signs 
from this team. It's just being more consistent and having a more complete roster. I think the Red Sox, their avenue of getting there is a lot easier than the Patriots avenue, or they're a lot closer just because if you look at it from a Patriots perspective, base ca- best case scenario, they get into the postseason. I believe they're going to have a really good chance to get in there. In fact, as I've said on the pod multiple times, I like that number for them to get into the postseason. And they're going to be more professional on the offensive side of the football with Bill O'Brien, which was not the case last year. But I think you're a lot further away, even though you have a really good defense. You're a lot further away from competing with the best of the best in terms of the teams in the NFL. Like just looking at the AFC, you're not in that realm of the Burrow situation where he's got Higgins and Jamar Chase. Like that team is going to be around for a while. The Bills with Josh Allen, right? These teams at the top. And of course, the Chiefs with Pat Mahomes, like these teams at the top, there is a bigger gap than where the Red Sox are at from some of these teams in the American League. I think we're going to see a positive season for the Patriots. And I think Mac Jones is going to take a step forward. And I think you're going to feel good about Mac after the season. But you still need to upgrade the receiver position. We'll see what the line looks like during the regular season as well. I think, too, like the Patriots, when you look at it from their perspective, a successful season, I don't know if they think it's just getting into the playoffs. I do. Like, if the Patriots are back in the playoffs, I feel like you feel a lot better about the direction of the organization. From a Red Sox perspective, it's just been flat-out embarrassing for the past couple of years. That's why I say 2024, it's put up or shut-up time. And they have got to figure this thing out in terms of the defense and the pitching. But I do understand the point. And it's interesting. Like, we went from the Bruins being a team that was the best in NHL history to losing in the first round where... Now the expectations on them next year are really low. The Celtics obviously have the highest of high expectations. And I would feel like the team that has the second most pressure on it next year is going to be the Red Sox. Like, I don't think there's going to be that same level of pressure on the Patriots. So the Red Sox are going to have a ton of pressure on them entering next season because Heim Bloom is basically, I think, going to be GMing, for lack of a better word, for his job. All right, thanks for the call. I did want to get to this. So... Mark Spears from ESPN was on a podcast called Sports by Northwest, which obviously is based out of Oregon. And he said, I know Jason Tatum has called him, talking about Damian Lillard, try to get in his ear, but his focus is definitely on Miami. So he knew that Tatum had reached out to him and Lillard just is solely focused on going to Miami. So Spears also said in his podcast, I think at 33, he looks at the landscape of the West and he's like, hmm. I think my chances are better to go out east, and if Miami is able to make the finals without somebody like myself, what can they do with me? All right, so it's interesting because we talked about last year how much the East has improved, and now if you look at it, the Philly situation is a mess with Harden. The Cavaliers were missing something in the playoffs. They don't look like a legit bona fide contender. The Knicks are a good team, but they're not a championship contending team. They're frisky, and they play the Celtics really well, but they can't win a championship. So it's basically the Celtics, the Heat, and the Bucks. And with the West, if you look out there, the Nuggets are clearly the best team coming off the championship. But you also have the Suns, who are loaded at the top. The Warriors are still a threat. The Lakers had a really good offseason. The Kings were really good last year. The Grizzlies added Marcus Smart. They have the reigning defensive player of the year in Jaron Jackson Jr. They'll get Morant back at some point. The Clippers are good on paper, as they always are. The Pelicans are good on paper, if they could ever stay healthy. Utah was plucky last year. The Mavs, even though they're not like championship contenders they do have Luke and Kyrie that's a tough team to play in a playoff series so and I guess the defense hasn't but nonetheless you get the point so if I was Lillard I would be trying to get to the east too yes you have the Celtics you have the Bucks at the top but the west playoffs are going to be more of a grind like you're going to have easier first and second round series in the east than you would in the western conference the one thing I do wonder about this 
in terms of Lillard's situation, because we know this has been going on for months now where he just wants to go to the Heat. What is the standard going to be for the league with these type of demands going forward? It'd be one thing if Lillard asked for a trade and he had a list of a few teams, right? Like we've seen that all the time in the history of the NBA and the history of sports. But to have one team, it's kind of insane. And I love Lillard as a player. I I would love him to be on the Celtics, right? But this guy has been to one conference finals and he was brutally outplayed by Steph Curry. And remember, the Warriors, they swept them. They didn't have Durant. In that series, Steph averaged 36.5 points, 8.2 rebounds, and 7.3 assists. Lillard averaged 22.3 points. Again, Steph averaged 36.5. Lillard had 4.8 rebounds, 8.5 assists. So Steph completely outplayed Lillard. The Blazers were outscored by 46 points with Lillard on the court. The Warriors outscored the Blazers by 42 with Curry on the floor. Like, it's not even close. Damian Lillard doesn't even reside in the same zip code as Steph Curry. And I'm going through this to kind of get to the point about where he is in the NBA. So, look, I'm not telling you that he's not a great player. He is. But he isn't one of the guys in the league that can carry a franchise like the guy that he got completely embarrassed by in the conference finals that year. Right? He's a great offensive player. He's also a DH, complete liability on the defensive side of the floor. But if you make the list, and the ringer has a list up right now, the top 100 players in the NBA— So this is their list. Jokic, Steph, Giannis, Durant, Embiid, Tatum, Luka, Kawhi, Jimmy Butler, Booker, Anthony Davis, LeBron, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, then Damian Lillard. Now, you can argue a couple of spots there, like I would take Tatum over Embiid. I'd rather have the wing than the big man. But the the point being is he isn't a top 10 guy in the league. Maybe you can argue Dame over some of these guys, but he's not a top 10 player in the league. So if Lillard can do this, where he just says, I'm I'm demanding a trade to this specific team, he's under contract through 26-27. And he willingly signed that deal. And you can give me the whole, well, he was waiting to see if the team could put better players around him. But what is the team supposed to do? If you're the Trailblazers, right? And it's a new front office. It's not the front office that Dame's been there with forever. What are they supposed to do when they have that pick at three? Not draft Scoot Henderson? If it was a bad draft, I'm sure the Blazers would have said, you know, there's not a lot of quality here at the top. Let's trade the pick and get a veteran player that we think can help you make a run to the NBA Finals, even though Dame is more of a two than he'd be a one if you're trying to win a championship, so they'd have to get somebody better than him. But anyway, but what the Blazers did was the smart thing. Hey, we haven't won anything with Damian Lillard. We haven't won one game of the conference finals. We have a young stud that is here in the draft. We're supposed to pass on him because he's not a fit with you. And we're supposed to go after somebody else and not look at the next 10 to 15 years or at least the next 10 years with this organization. That would just be asinine and dumb thinking by the Blazers to trade away that third pick when Scoot Henderson is there. So my thing is this. Clearly, the reporting has been the Blazers don't like what Miami has offered. Okay, and we can argue whether or not it's a fair deal or not. The point being is what we've heard and what's been reported from the Blazers side of things. They're not happy with the offer that Miami has made. So they really need to get a third team involved here and make this return look a lot better. Because if they just cave to the Heat's offer, that they've put it out there. Like, it's a, like if, if they like the Heat's offer, this deal would be done. It would be over by now. But if they, don't, if they take the offer that they apparently don't like, it just sets a really bad precedent for the league. And look, that trio of Lillard, Bam, and Butler is frightening from a Celtics perspective. But when a guy is at best going to be the second best player on a championship team because Butler is better than Lillard. Like you rather have Butler in the playoffs than Lillard. He actually plays on defense. You could argue that Bam 
is a better playoff player. Now, Bam can't carry an organization, but as the second best player, the guy is one of the best defensive players in the league. He's a really good offensive player. I'd rather have Bam in a playoff series than Lillard. If you're saying, hey, who's your number two guy in a playoff series? I'd rather have Bam than Lillard because Bam can do all this stuff from a defensive versatility standpoint. He can cover everyone. I mean, we've seen Bam has absolutely killed the Celtics. So if that type of player, Lillard, who plays one side of the court, is not a top 10 player in the league, if he can demand this trade to one team and he actually gets what he wants, what type of precedent does that set across the league? Like, I feel like the Blazers are in a really big spot here, right? And I like the fact, great, Tatum recruited me, doesn't want to come here. I mean, it sucks from a Celtics perspective that he doesn't want to come here because him is like the number two guy behind Tatum. I mean, that'd be great. I like the Celtics roster right now. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going nuts about this or anything along those lines. But I just feel like unless... Miami gets a third team involved and you get players that the Blazers really like and we as NBA fans can look at it and say okay that's a really good return for Damian Lillard that's a nice return for Damian Lillard then they can't make the trade because if they do how many other players between 11 and 20 in the NBA are going to do this down the road like when does it stop like this to me and Lillard apparently like you look at his career you can say he's done everything right to this point this giving them one team to trade him to I mean a tough shit. Like, I, I don't know how you make that deal if if you're the Blazers. I, I, I mean, I'd rather just keep him, if he's upset and he doesn't play, I'd rather do that than make this type of trade and set this precedent across the league because the Blazers next year, we know what they're doing. Like, their plan is already to try to build for the future around Scoot Henderson and some of the young players they have. So if Dame's unhappy, don't, t- like, oh, well, I mean, we're tanking anyway, basically. We're trying to develop our young players. That's pretty much it. Like, if you're the Blazers, I don't know why you would cave to Miami's offer. It just... It's bad for them, and it'd be bad for the league. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll talk in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, hope is here, visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call one 877 8 Hope and Y or text Hope.